where are we going? We are going to Matthew 16. So open your Bibles with me, if you would. My name is Ken Delage. If I haven't had the privilege to meet you, thanks for being with us as we continue our series, A King Like No Other, as we work our way through the book of Matthew. So grandparents say strange things. They have funny sayings. Grandparents are, they are heralds from another era. They are representatives of another time and culture and people group. And that's true of grandparents that are from the U.S. and grew up in the same town that you did. But they, they will say things, they, they will quote advertisements you've never heard about products you didn't know exist. They will sing songs by people you've never heard of that were apparently popular at some point. They will quote people that you didn't know existed and dispense with wise sayings after wise sayings from who knows where they got these. I remember one of these wise sayings that my grandparents used. I don't know if it quite qualifies as a wise saying. It was more... uh, a, a, a kind of just discernment, good for a farmer to know, kind of saying. And it was this, red sun at night, sailors delight. Red sun in the morning, sailors take warning. You had grandparents too. Yeah. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know where that came from. I remember it got stuck in my head as a kid. I thought, wow, this is really good to know. You know, red sun at night, it's going to be good tomorrow. Red sun in the morning, yikes, no good. Um, so this is, this is good kind of practical advice, the kind of advice that grandparents pass down. It's a kind of discernment about the world. In the passage we're going to look at, Jesus commends that kind of discernment. That's a gift from God. That's a good thing that we're able to you know, look at the sun and know something about the weather you know, in the days before the Weather Channel could tell us what wasn't going to happen the next day. Uh, it, was, it, it was good. And yet Jesus uses this reality that we have this kind of discernment to say, you know, you seem to be missing that discernment about me. You seem to have it everywhere else, but not when it comes to me. So let's look together at Christ and his words. We're going to be looking this morning at the first 20 verses of Matthew 16, but I'd like to read just the first 12 to get us started, and then we'll come back to the rest. So So follow along as I read Matthew 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? 
Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. God's word. Okay, so this passage begins in what is now becoming a familiar place for Jesus in his ministry, and that is the place of conflict between him and the Pharisees. And in this case, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they gang up together and come out to test Jesus. They want to see what he's made of. They want to put him on the spot. They want to reveal before everybody what they already know to be true about him inside. And so they say, show us a sign from heaven. Prove who you are with some kind of a miracle. Now, I guess they missed the feeding of the 4,000, which just happened. Or the healing of all the sick in the region, which led up to the feeding of the 4,000. Or in the previous chapter, the feeding of the 5,000. Or that time when Jesus walked on water. All of this in the last three chapters. But whatever, show us a sign. And so Jesus does not respond directly to their request, but he begins to talk about the weather. And he uses essentially my grandparents' saying, right? Red sun at night, sailors delight. Red sun in the morning, sailors take warning. Now, how is it that you can interpret so well those things about everyday life? And you totally miss these things about me. There have been multiple signs. You should have been reading it. Your your discernment, it works so good over here. And yet you refuse to use it over here. Over here, you are blind. When it comes to me, you are blind. Jesus is, is revealing, is showing them that they are blind. It is a blindness concerning Christ himself. They see other things rightly. They can, they can understand other things, but they cannot see him rightly. We actually talked about this last week, if you were with us in every square inch. We talked about the depravity of thinking and how it affects specifically our thoughts as related to God. And here it is. They are blind in relation to God. But it's not the kind of blindness that you might call an innocent blindness. Like they're just afflicted by it and they can't see and ah, you know, too bad they can't see. It is a culpable blindness. In verse 4, he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. The, the problem is not that there haven't been signs to see. The problem is that their heart does not want to see them. And if your heart doesn't want to see Jesus rightly, guess what? You won't. You won't see Jesus Rightly, it is a Christ blindness, it is a culpable blindness, and he warns them, it is a contagious blindness. And so having addressed them, he turns to his disciples and says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now the disciples get all confused. (laughs) Uh, They go off on a rabbit trail, worried that they hadn't brought bread. Oh no, you know, maybe Jesus is going to be hungry and we should have brought the bread. One of the commentators points out that the last 
This is coming right after Jesus had fed the 4,000 and there were seven loaves left over. And so, you know, maybe they left them on the the shore. Like, that's kind of a bummer. Of all the bread to forget, you know, it's like the miracle bread. Like, I thought you had it. Peter, I thought you gave it to who? You know what I mean? And somehow the bread got left behind and they are worried that they're going to be hungry. Jesus is going to be hungry. They're going to like make him do another miracle. They're they're feeling bad, but they're they're just totally wrong track. And so Jesus just addresses them and he corrects them. I think you've missed the point of the feeding of the 4,000. The feeding of the 5,000. You seem to have missed all that. The, the, that yes, I, I did those things, but the, but the point for you is if you're with me, you're good. I'll take care of you if you're with me. I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about, and then they understand, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It is like leaven. And what does leaven do? It gets into bread and it grows. Yeast grows through bread, right? Put just a little bit in. It grows throughout the bread. It changes the entire loaf. It is a contagion that can spread. And he's saying, watch out for this particular contagion. The the leaven of the, the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees results not in a deeper discernment, but a deeper darkness To stretch my analogy, it's a blinder blindness that results from their teaching. Now, as you know, we're coming out of a pandemic. And one of the really unusual side effects of COVID is this loss of smell and sometimes loss of taste. I don't think everybody that got that had that side effect, but a lot of people did. A couple folks in my own family, when we had it, had this side effect and for two of them, they still don't have their taste entirely back and their smell entirely back. It's returning, but not all the way back. So all of a sudden, they're just, boom, gone. Loss of smell. Gone for days or weeks or forever. You don't really know. It's just all of a sudden there. Well, well, what Jesus is talking about here is a kind of a pandemic that comes with their teaching. It's an infection which doesn't affect the smell, but the eyes. And the eyes, the ability to perceive Christ go dim. Eleven of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees infects the hearer so that they are further plunged into darkness. All right, so with with that, let's read the rest of our passage together. Then we'll talk about that and pull the the whole thing together. So we'll pick up reading in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So this 
the theme of the passage that we're beginning to see is, is whether folks are seeing Jesus rightly. The identity of Jesus. And that theme continues into this. Jesus asks his disciples, so, who do people say that I am? And the crowds are confused. They, well, apparently, I mean, he's a powerful man, so who, who else was a powerful man? And they just begin to kind of list them off. Well, okay, maybe he's Elijah, and maybe he's Jeremiah. And, you know, John the Baptist, he just died. Maybe this is John the Baptist come back from the dead. And so they, they are right in the sense that they're considering him a prophet. Jesus did come as a prophet, as the prophet, as the great and final prophet. But they were wrong. In fact, they were blind to think of him as merely a human prophet. Anytime people talk of Jesus, even in great ways, that fall short of who he is, that's the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees that we need to be careful of. You will not often hear it in terms of Jesus was an evil man. Even in our secular society, even in our post-Christian and oftentimes Christian-hating society, Jesus is not denigrated that way because he doesn't need to be denigrated that way to still be denigrated. The enemy is just fine and happy to consider Christ as anything less, Jesus as anything less than who he really is. So most heresies exalt Jesus as a great man. Most unbelievers consider Jesus a good teacher. Many of those folks speeding on their way to hell consider Jesus a prophet. Even Islam itself, the great bastion of distortion, considers Jesus to be a prophet. And it is the blind leading the blind. It is the repackaging of the Pharisees' teaching. It is the refusal to see Jesus as Peter saw him, as the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus then asks his disciples, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, if you've been with us through the series on Matthew, you're not surprised that Peter is the one that speaks up first. What's surprising is that he was right when he spoke up. <laughs> but he was. He was right. And right was he. Oh my. Here is the confession of Peter. You are the Christ. The Christ is the Messiah. And the, the anointed one of God. The one God sent to redeem and rescue God's people from their enemies. That's who you are. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that confession of Peter, he was the first to speak it, becomes quickly the confession of the disciples. And then it becomes the confession of the church. Who is, Christ? Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is no mere prophet. He is not simply a good person or an amazing teacher. He is the anointed one of God, sent by God to rescue the people of God from their enemies. He is the Son of God. 
one with the Father, the very God of very God. To this question right here, this question and answer right here in this verse of our Bible, this verse, verse 16 of Matthew chapter 16, is the hinge of the entire book of Matthew. You think of it like the continental divide. You know the continental divide, right? A raindrop falls on this side and it goes this way all the way to the Atlantic. Raindrop falls on this side, goes this way all the way to the Pacific, right? This is the continental divide in the book of Matthew. Up to this point, everything led here. This is where all the trails had been leading. This is where all the miracles have been pointing. This has been the goal of all of Jesus' teaching. This is what the Pharisees refused to consider. This is what the Sadducees would not perceive. This is what the crowds could not imagine. This is what even the disciples had missed up to this very point. The blind contagion held them all in its grip. And then Peter perceives. How in the world did Peter get there? When it was all darkness. I mean, it, we're, we're 16 chapters in before the first person recognizes Jesus for who he is. How did he perceive? How did, how did he not succumb to the blind contagion? It was by divine revelation. Verse 17, Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter didn't learn this from James and John in a little discussion on the side. He did not hear it from the crowds. He, he wasn't told this by some insightful religious leader that came by and listened to Jesus. And he certainly did not get there by listening to his own wise thoughts of discernments. No, he learned this not from humans, but from heaven. To know Jesus as the Christ is a gift from God. This is the only way Jesus is known as the Christ, the Son of God. He may be known as prophet. He may be known as teacher. He may be known as good moral leader. But he will not be known as Christ, the Son of the living God, unless God himself opens the eyes to see that reality. So it was with Peter. So it is today. So friend, I talk to you today. If you are not a Christian... Let me say it another way. If you don't know in the deepest place within you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then the first thing this passage says to you is that you are blind and that it is a culpable blindness. It's a blindness that results from loving sin and not wanting to part from it. Not wanting anything to do with a God that is holy, and righteous and good. And if you don't know Jesus as the Christ, the passage says that you are blind, but it also reveals that God opens eyes. And so let me exhort you this morning to go to God and ask Him to open your eyes. Have you ever done that? If you don't know Him, have you ever done that? Have you ever just said, okay, fine. Would you show me? I can't see. Forgive me. 
for my sin. Would you show me what other people seem to be able to see? Other people seem to be able to see this. I can't. Go to him with that. Go to him with that in all sincerity. Because he's the one that opens eyes. He's the one that can make you see. And church, if you're sitting here this morning and you know Christ and you've known him for years, you know, it's easy after a period of time you become aware, hopefully, of ways that you've grown, of you know, people you've maybe evangelized to, or there's a, there's a certain track record you begin to accumulate. Christian, you do not know Christ because of your smarts or your goodness or your track record in following him. There is only one reason you know him, and that is because God, in his mercy, opened your eyes. Despite you, despite not deserving it, he did it anyway. It was entirely his grace. We are saved by the divine revelation of Jesus within our hearts. And those who were blind can now see. But for his, you know, we think of saving grace. We can talk about revelatory grace. Grace that reveals is the grace that saves. Apart from that, we wouldn't be saved. All praise to God. All praise to God. This this is just cause for the church to rejoice and marvel that God opened our eyes and to worship Him. He is good. But church, this is also why you can pray with confidence for the lost. If, if, If it was up to people to open their eyes, I would ask you, why bother praying to God about it? But if it is God who opens eyes, then let us go to that one and speak with him about it. Let us ask our God to open the eyes of blind children and blind neighbors and blind friends. And let us ask and ask and ask because he is the one with power to save. He is the one who opens blind eyes still today It is the blowing of the Spirit upon the soul that rescues the sinner. And so we may cry out again and again, blow, Spirit, blow. Do your invisible work in the hearts of those we live with and walk with and love. So now we get to verses 18 and 19, which are some of the most controversial in church history, perhaps the most controversial in church history, Uh, perhaps by far. Verse 18 and 19, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, a quick primer if you're not familiar. Roman Catholic theology bases their entire Uh, teaching on the Pope on these verses right here. So Peter, they would say, was the first Pope. And he was clearly commissioned right here by Jesus. You're the rock, and on you I'm going to build the church. And so there's Peter. And now it's the successors of Peter that are still governing the church. He was given the keys of the kingdom and the authority to bind and loose. Which is why in Catholic theology, it is so fearful to be excommunicated by the Pope. You get it? 
The Pope excommunicates you. Whatever he binds on earth is bound in heaven. Looses on earth is loosed in heaven. If he says you're going to hell, then to hell you will go. That is just the end of the story. Praise God for bold reformers back in the day who stood up to uh, the worst conceivable threat, far worse than death, that somebody could hold this power. Now, as we look at it, I hate to tell you, but the Roman Catholic Church got some things right about this verse that we want to understand. Because Jesus says, when you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, Peter's name, we call him Peter. Peter's name was Simon. He was not Peter until right here. Jesus renamed him right here. So it's kind of neat because it's the, it's the same grammar. Peter says, you are Christ. And he says, you are Peter. So he renames him Peter. Now, Peter in the original language simply is the word rock. Okay, we need to, we need to see that because that's, that's important in this. Jesus is doing a play on words. He says, you are rock and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, what made Peter that rock? Well, the fact that he had just announced who Jesus really is, right? He had, he had rightly said who, who Jesus is. Now, Protestants will say that Jesus is not really making Peter the rock of the church. He's making his confession the rock of the church. I want to believe that. I can't support it well from the text. I think he's making Peter the rock for the church as the first one who confessed Christ rightly. Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. But that doesn't mean we end up with a pope, all right? So let's, let me bring in one other verse that, that's going to help. You can look it up or I can just tell you it. It's over in Ephesians 2.20 if you want to write that down. Ephesians 2.20. It's talking about the church and here's what it says about the church. It says that the church is, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the first thing we would say is that the church has one cornerstone. It is not Peter, it is Jesus. He's the cornerstone. However, the church does have a foundation, and the foundation is the apostles and prophets. So bringing these two passages together, it seems as though Peter is perhaps you might say the first stone in the foundation, aside from the cornerstone, who is Christ. Right? So Christ is right now, he's building the foundation. That's what he's doing with these guys. He's building the foundation for the church. Right? Peter steps forward, and he's the first rock that gets put into place. And he has a, a, a very preeminent role. He is, from this point on, the leader of the disciples, the most significant ministry of all of them, uh, until Paul comes on the scene. But very significant ministry. So the apostles and prophets do form the foundation of the church. And I think as Protestants, we would do well to admit that and celebrate that. Praise God for the apostles and prophets that came because without them, we wouldn't know anything about Jesus. Right? Jesus didn't come to us and tell us about himself. He came to them and told them, now you go tell people. And they did. And so the church has grown off of their testimony about Jesus. You know what we're reading right now? The book of Matthew? A book written by an apostle who saw Jesus, knew Jesus, and now 
passed that on to us so that we who never saw, never knew in the flesh, can come to know Christ Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. The, the New Testament itself is, is part of the work of the apostles in laying that foundation for the church. Now, we can celebrate this without some kind of fear that we might need to uh, submit to the Pope, because here's the thing. The whole idea of a foundation is that you lay it at the bottom of the building, right? It's absolutely vital. The building will not stand without a foundation, but it's not like, well, then more's better. Let's put another foundation under the 17th floor. No, that's not how buildings work. You put the foundation at the bottom, and then you build the structure on top of that solid foundation. That's what's going on. Peter has no successor, is what I'm saying. The church needs no stone on earth right now to build on, because the apostles did their job. They were the foundation. They laid a good one. Now the church is being built upon it. Glory to God. All right, so we can admit and embrace the fact that Peter had a strategic, important, God-given, wonderful, probably were saved because of him role. And that it was limited in time to the first layer, as foundations are. Okay, the other part that gives some, it's interesting, is verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you Loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there's two things here. There's keys and there's binding and loosing. So keys. Think, think of what, what, he's, what he's giving to Peter. He's giving to Peter and through him to the disciples and through them to the church. The keys of the kingdom of heaven, which is to say it is the church's job to throw open the gates of heaven to the world. It is the church's job to proclaim the gospel and invite sinners in. There is no other way through which the doors are open to heaven but through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. This is the only way sinners will be saved is when the church uses the keys to open the door by proclaiming Christ to the world. That's what this is talking about. This is a great commission verse. This is the go and make disciples part of it. You've got the keys, go use them. Go let people in. The doors can now be opened as Christ, in a few chapters, dies for his people. The doors can then be opened for them to come in. But the church, my goodness, it is significant, is given the keys. And it is the church's job to proclaim, but then to bind and loose. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, loose in heaven. This is another part of the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. So go into a pagan culture and loose them from all their superstition. Loose them from all their legalism. Loose them from all of these demonic chains that have been on them generation after generation and after generation. And then bind them to me. Bind them to the law of love. As Christians, teach them to live as believers under the true king. So this is, this is, the, this is the first telling, if you will, of the, of the Great Commission. Of, of go and make disciples and, and grow them up. So what, is this, what does this have to do with us? What is this section? Okay, we did a little Catholic history 
Hopefully that wasn't too boring. I know some folks in here were wrestling with and have just never heard it taught. What does this really mean, if not what the, what the Catholics would say? But it means more than that to us because, because it means this. How are Christians made on earth? Through the church. That's the only way. This is it. Who has the keys to open the door to eternal life? It is the church. This is a profound and weighty calling given to us, friends. Now, how are Christians made? By the power of God. That's how Christians are made, right? It is by divine revelation that people come to know that Jesus is the Christ. But that divine revelation only happens in the context of Christ being proclaimed by the church. It's the only way. So it is the church's job to print Bibles and get them in the hands of unbelievers, that they may read the apostolic testimony of Jesus. And perhaps without even talking to a believer, they're talking to Matthew. Matthew's talking to them. God may talk to them, and they may be saved by just interacting with his word. Or it's by a missionary going to an unreached people group and proclaiming. Or it's by you talking to your neighbor and bringing up Jesus again with them. That they can hear and come to know Christ. Church, we are called to make disciples of Jesus. We are called to evangelize to call people to repentance, to tell them of Him. We wield the authority of God in these keys. That is a profoundly uh, motivating reality and a profoundly wonderful reality. We wield the authority of God with this. Do you feel weak when you evangelize? Oh, I do. Oh, oh, I do every time. Friend, it, it, is, it is not you to save but it is you to preach. It is you to proclaim. And then God does the saving as we wield these keys. So, Mercy Hill, let us be again, as we have been since day one, and may God just impress us deeper and deeper, a church that loves the gospel, that is founded on the gospel. The gospel is the person and work of Jesus. That Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God who came to save sinners. Let's be a gospel-loving church that rejoices in awe and wonder that God would choose to save us, that God would open our eyes. This, we should be a joyful people above all others. How did such goodness come to us? Glory to God. Amen and amen. Glory to Him over and over and over again. It should motivate us to worship. This should motivate us to pray, to ask that the gospel would go forward, to ask that he would open blind eyes, to not get tired of praying, because he is the God who saves. And this should motivate us to proclaim the name of Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Son of the living God, and who will save all who put their trust in him. Friends, the church which does that is doing pretty good. Love the gospel. Worship because of the gospel.
Pray because of the gospel. Proclaim because of the gospel. We might not have a lot of numbers. We might not have a lot of programs. Eh, we're going to have some weaknesses. But a church that's doing this is, is glorifying to God and is fulfilling the mission that God put us here to do. Let us, let us do so in his name and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, where we have failed in these areas, we just come to you repenting right now. Forgive us of our prayerlessness. Forgive us of our failure to think about speaking to others of you, to follow through speaking to others of you. Even for our callousness towards the gospel and our um, tendency to, to lose our awe and wonder at what you've done. Please forgive us. And thank you that you do. And thank you that you're at work in us. And would you glorify yourself in us, through us. Make us more like Jesus. And help us to reflect Jesus to those around us. To be a praying worshiping, proclaiming people. Accomplish these things in us, we pray for, for your glory, Father. For the name of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.